happen to mention a few things first before we look into those verses, that here in our fifth session in our Doctrines of Grace conference, we are studying the fifth and last doctrine, the doctrine of preserving grace. And as we will see, this doctrine does not stand alone, but it is a necessary part of sovereign grace theology. And many of our other speakers today have mentioned that these doctrines stand or fall together. Just consider two of them that we've looked at thus far today. Consider the doctrine of sovereign election, and also consider the doctrine that we just looked at, the doctrine of efficacious grace. Both of those doctrines imply the certain salvation of all who receive such blessings. For example, since God has unconditionally elected men to eternal life, and because the Holy Spirit effectively applies the benefits of redemption, the inescapable conclusion that we must come to is that by the same grace, individuals will be preserved in that salvation to the end. And that is what we will look at as we look at the doctrine of preserving grace. Let's look at 1 John chapter 2, and let us first read verses 19 and 20. John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. In this epistle of 1 John, the apostle is writing most likely from his home church at Ephesus to other churches throughout Asia Minor in order to expose false teachers that were a spiritual threat to these local churches, and also in order to reassure the faithful believers that they could have genuine assurance of possessing eternal life. In fact, if you remember that verse so many of us are familiar with in chapter 5, verse 13, when John writes that these things I have written unto you, that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye might know that you have eternal life? In other words, one of the reasons why he was writing to them was so that the true believers in these congregations could have assurance of their salvation. But as John seeks to reassure his readers of their possession of salvation, he does not take them back to some time when they prayed the sinner's prayer or walked up for an altar call, and prayed a prayer. Now, I'm not saying that people who go through that aren't always saved. There are people who go through those man-made traditions that are saved, not because of those traditions, but because of grace, as we've been studying today. But notice, John does not point them back to those man-made traditions that would come later. Rather, he gives them a series of tests all throughout the book of 1 John. Doctrinal tests concerning do they believe in the biblical Christ? And moral tests, that is, are they living in the way that true believers live? Now, as he does this, he exposes the heretics that 
would teach different teachings that would later be called Gnosticism. But he exposes them as not being true Christians at all. And as he exposes them, he gives assurance to the true believers who had been transformed by God's grace in such a way that they did believe in the biblical Christ and they were living holy lives. Here in chapter 2, verse 19, the apostle exposes the false teachers first concerning their departure from the people of God. Look at verse 19. <coughs> the first part of the verse, he writes this. Just notice these first five words. They went out from us. Here, brethren, is one of the times in Scripture where we are warned about a very important reality, and that is the reality of apostasy. That is, knowing the truth, but later on, turning away from the truth and turning away from it completely. Let me give you an example of apostasy. A person might hear the gospel and profess that they have repented and believed the message. That same individual might be baptized, and that same individual might become part of a local church, might regularly attend the services, might share the message of Christ with others. As time goes on, he might even marry a believer and have a family, maybe even become a leader in the church. And yet later, turn away from the faith, never to return again, and then die in that condition. You know, there are many biblical examples of apostasy of individuals, even those who were in positions of spiritual leadership. Let me just give you a few examples. You find these all throughout the Old and New Testament. But let me just give you some New Testament examples. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul warns of Hymenaeus and Alexander who were such apostates. Listen to these examples. Paul says, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander. He's, these men, their faith was shipwrecked. They're no longer in the faith. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul also writes to Timothy about Demas, saying, for Demas have forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now, some might ask, well, does that mean Demas really wasn't a believer? Well, you got to understand, when you take the New Testament together as a whole, love for the world is a fruit of someone who is in an unregenerate state. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, you can even read it. If one of the tests that John gives of whether someone is a true believer or not is if they either love the world or if they love the Father. If they have a love for the world, they don't love the Father. Demas departed from Paul because he loved this present fallen world system. And then finally, how can we forget the example of Judas? Think about it for a moment. We're familiar with Judas, so a lot of times maybe we don't think so deeply on actually what happened with him. Judas professed faith in Christ. Judas preached. Judas probably even did miracles. Because if you remember, Jesus sent out the 12 not only to preach, but also to do miraculous things. But eventually, he betrayed the Lord, 
And when he knew he did wrong, he did not repent with a godly sorrow, but with a worldly sorrow. You see, he didn't come back to the apostles and say, I have sinned, I did wrong, and he wasn't restored. Rather, he went out and he committed suicide. Peter said this in Acts 1.25 about the apostleship and ministry. He said, from which Judas fell, that he might go to his own place. So Judas is just another example of someone who committed apostasy. So all these men, just four New Testament examples of individuals who were in the faith, maybe even in a position of preaching and leadership, who fell away. Now, at the same time, we have it, many examples in the New Testament of what we oftentimes refer to as warning passages. That is, passages that warn us to hold on to the faith, continue in the faith, and those who don't will perish. Let me just give you a few of those as well, if you're taking notes. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul wrote to the Colossians, that they had been reconciled in the body of Christ's flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now listen, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled and not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now notice that. He says to the Colossians, you will receive all of these spiritual benefits to the work of Christ, but he warns, if ye continue. Also, another example comes from Hebrews chapter number 3. Now, just to know the context there in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is writing to Hebrew people who had become Christians, but were being persecuted by their countrymen, and they were being tempted to go back to Judaism, to just recognize the old covenant and not the new and the Messiah who had come. And as the author writes to them, he says... But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. You see there the warning. Verse 14 of that same chapter says, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Even Paul and Barnabas in their ministry, when they were talking to new disciples in Acts chapter 13, verse 43, it says there they persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So again, this is just a small sampling of warning passages that we are to continue in the faith, that we are not to turn aside, that we are not to fall away. But this falling away this departure from the faith is exactly what some did here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. The false teachers had done it. Those whom they had led astray had done it. And that is why John could write, they went out from us. Brethren, have you ever seen this before? It happens. And when it happens, it is a sad reality to see. But notice then what he writes next in the verse. He writes, they went out from us, but now look at this here. <coughs> they went out from us, 
but they were not of us. Notice now very carefully what the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write. First notice what he does not write. He does not say they went out from us and now they are no longer of us. He doesn't say that. He does not say that these are individuals who once were saved, but now are no longer saved. He doesn't say that. Now, brethren, I know there are many Christians who believe that that can happen. But in all honesty, if you really study the New Testament and God's supernatural work in the conversion of a sinner, such a belief is foolishness. It assumes that a person can move into a condition of spiritual life and then back again into a condition of spiritual death simply by an act of his own will. But that's impossible. Lorraine Bettner, in his great book called The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, put it this way. This mistaken doctrine of the Arminians teaches that a person may be a son of God today and a son of the devil tomorrow that he may change from one state to another as rapidly as he changes his mind. It teaches that he may be born of the Spirit, justified, sanctified, all but glorified, and that even then he may become reprobate and perish eternally, his own will and course of conduct being the determining factor. Then he says, No creature is at liberty to change the fundamental principles of its nature, for that is the prerogative of God as creator. Hence, nothing short of another supernatural act of God could reverse this change and, the ca and cause the new life to be lost. The born-again Christian can no more lose his sonship to the heavenly father than an earthly son can lose his sonship to an earthly father. The idea that a Christian may fall away and perish arises from a wrong conception of the principle of spiritual life which is imparted to the soul in regeneration. In other words... If regeneration is a supernatural work of God in which a fallen sinner receives a new nature and as a result of receiving that new nature now desires to repent and desires to believe and desires to follow Christ, it's impossible by an act of his will to change his new nature back into the old nature. Do you understand? So it's absolutely impossible for someone to be in a condition of regeneration and go back to an unregenerate state. The idea that someone can be saved and lost again is completely unbiblical. So John is not referring to that here. Notice also what he doesn't say. He does not say they went out from us, but they are still of us. He doesn't say that either. In this passage, he makes it clear that these ones who departed are not really part of God's people. He does not say they are still of us. They're just the carnal Christians. Well, we're the spiritual Christians. You see, biblically, we see throughout Scripture, there's only two kinds of people in this world. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either regenerate or you're unregenerate. You're either the spiritual man or you're the natural man, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes it clear that Christians, or even professing Christians, 
can act carnal. They can act fleshly. But he doesn't say there's this third kind of man who's saved, but he lives just like a lost man. The concept is nowhere in Scripture. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, the doctrine of the carnal Christian. Let me just kind of give you a brief overview of it. Basically, the teaching is this, that there are three types of people. There's the natural man, and the throne of his heart, on the throne, Christ is not there because he's lost. Christ is not his Savior. Christ is not his Lord. We agree. Okay, then they say there's a second type of man. That's the spiritual man. He's saved. Christ is his Savior. And Christ reigns. He's sitting on the throne of his heart. Christ is his Lord and his Savior. Again, we agree. Now, here's the problem. They say there's a third type of man, the carnal man. He's saved, but Christ is not sitting on the throne of his heart. He is not yet submitted to him as Lord. That is nowhere in Scripture. You're either the natural man or you are the spiritual man. And that's it. John does not even give us the idea of such a concept. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And it was quoted for us a little bit earlier, but I'll just remind you, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, describing regeneration. Here's what it says happens to us when we are born again, when we are born of the Spirit. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. You see, the one who has been regenerated has now been given a new nature. He no longer loves sin, but desires now to keep God's commandments and to follow Christ for who he is, both Savior and Lord. You see, you cannot have Christ as Savior without also having him as Lord. Among many who do teach the carnal Christian doctrine, you notice oftentimes when they call people to believe the gospel, they will simply say to accept Christ as Savior. But they will never use Lord in their terminology because they don't believe that when a person is saved that they will necessarily submit to Christ as Lord as well. But such a concept is foreign to the New Testament. Now, with all that being said, what does John write here? Notice verse 19. They went out from us, but what does he say? But they were not of us. In other words, they really weren't Christians. They professed faith in Christ. They may have looked like they were saved. They probably even thought they were saved. But in actuality, they were not. Their departure from the Orthodox teaching and from the genuine church, only demonstrated their true spiritual condition. Later on in the verse, at the end, he writes this, if you'll notice there, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. Like Judas, or Demas, or Hymenaeus, and Alexander, they were in the fellowship, They partook in the worship, but they did not have spiritual life 
and their apostasy reveals who they really are. I don't know how many of you are, any are familiar with Dan Barker. He was a pastor for about 19 years. He departed from the faith. He's one of the biggest enemies, vocal enemies against the Christian faith in America today. But when you hear him speak a lot of times defending his former days when he was a professing Christian and a pastor, he'll say, I really was a true believer, even though he's an atheist. I really was a true believer. I had all the fruits that the Bible talks about a true believer has. Well, you're missing one. Perseverance. (laughs) If you didn't persevere, that demonstrates that you really weren't converted. So here, John reveals to us, since they went out from us, they really were not of us. Now, a serious matter, too, Sometimes false converts are revealed in this life, but others will be revealed on the day of judgment. And if I ask you, just please keep your finger in 1 John and let me show you in Matthew chapter number 7. What Jesus says will be the situation with many who come to him in that day. Look at verses 21 through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Notice here, there's so much that we could talk about in these verses, but it just in keeping with our subject, notice, Jesus does not say, I once knew you. He says, I never knew you. It's not that you were my followers and later on you weren't. It's that you never were truly my followers. Even with Judas, Jesus revealed that he was not a real disciple even before he betrayed him. And if you would there, turn, you can stay in First John, but look at John chapter 6. And you can look at verse 65 to start with. And we're going to see here just in this passage some of the doctrines that we've looked at today. But I want you to focus on mainly what we're talking about in this session. But look at verse 65. Jesus said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him by my Father. There is election. You see, Jesus doesn't say, no man may come to me. The word may is a word of permission. He doesn't say, you're not permitted. No, he says, no man can come to me. See, can is a word of ability. No fallen sinner has the ability to truly repent of his sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's in a condition of spiritual death. First, he must be regenerated. First, he must be born again. After he is born again, then he will exercise faith in Christ. See, many times we have it backwards. We think we believe, and as a result, we're born again. No, we are born again by God's Spirit, and as a result, we believe. But here you see, no man can come unless it is given to him by the Father. There's election. Okay, look at verse 66. Here we see the apostasy of the crowd. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. 
verses 67 through 69 here, in the midst of this apostasy, here we see the true believers. And we know they were true believers because they would remain in the faith. Look at verse 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So there was a right profession of faith, and it's a faith for Peter and almost all the rest of them that would continue. So in the midst of that apostasy, you had true believers, and we know they were true because their faith would last. But now finally look at verse 70. As Jesus exposes one other disciple who would later fall away. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? So you notice something, brethren. Even before Judas betrayed and fell away, Jesus made it clear he was not even a true disciple. It's not that Judas was saved and then lost. He never was saved at all. Again, Lorraine Bettner explains in a wonderful way how this can happen. They make an outward profession of the gospel, which obliges them for a time to be outwardly moral and to associate themselves with the people of God. They appear to have true faith and continue thus for a while. Then either their sheep's clothing is stripped off or they throw it off themselves and return again to the world. Oftentimes, the common operations of the Spirit on the enlightened conscience lead to reformation and to an external religious life. To the awakened sinner, the promises of the gospel and the exhibition of the plan of salvation contained in the scriptures appear not only as true, but as suited to his condition. He receives them with joy and believes with a faith founded on the moral force of truth. This faith continues as long as the state of mind by which it is produced continues. When that changes, he relapses into his usual state of insensibility and his faith disappears. Heard the gospel, received it with certain motives, but not the right motives, and then later turns away. I'm sure probably most of you in here are familiar with the phrases, once saved, always saved, and also with the phrase, eternal security. Now, both of those phrases are absolutely true. They are true statements. Once you are saved, you are always saved. And if you are truly a believer, you are eternally secure in that salvation. But here's the problem. We have to make sure to not be imbalanced. These are true phrases that are oftentimes abused. Let me just show you why. Look at the middle of the verse here in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Now here's what John writes. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. This is preserving grace. The true convert, the genuine believer, yes, will always be saved. They are eternally secure. But he will also continue in his faith to the end. And it's very important to affirm that. This doctrine has also been referred to as the perseverance of the saints. Because the elect are not only eternally secure in their salvation, 
but they match the description of true believers in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, where it says, this is the perseverance or the patience of the saints who keep the commandments of God and the faith in Jesus. You see, the true believers continue on believing in Jesus throughout their life, and as a style of life, they strive to keep the commandments of God. They guard them as a rule for their lives. Those are the ones that are eternally secure in their salvation. Those are the ones who are truly saved. They will always be saved, and they will continue in the faith. Even Jesus said to some of his professing disciples in John chapter 8, verse 31, he said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye disciples of mine indeed. Now let me give you a statement of the doctrine from the Westminster Confession, which was quoted earlier today. But it says this concerning this doctrine. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now two points to make concerning this and concerning some of what we've spoken on. Number one, this doctrine does not mean that any Christian reaches a state of sinless perfection in this life. The Bible is clear that no believer can ever reach such a state in this life. This is because although we have been regenerated and given a new nature, we still dwell in unredeemed flesh, so we battle against sin every day. Daily, it is a battle. We may fall into sin. We even may fall temporarily like David did and like Peter did. But unlike Judas or other apostates that we see in Scripture, who fall away permanently, the true believer will always repent and be called back. And there's the difference. You see, what did David do? I have sinned against the Lord. What did Peter do? He went out. He wept bitterly. He was restored to Christ right there on the seaside. When he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? He was restored. He was sent out again to preach. But what did Judas do? Committed suicide. What did Demas do? He went out and enjoyed the world. You see, that's the difference. The true believer falls but gets back up. The unbeliever permanently falls away. A.H. Strong put it this way. The Christian is like a man making his way up a hill who occasionally slips back, yet always has his face set toward the summit. The unregenerate man has his face turned downwards, and he is slipping all the way. And finally, Charles Spurgeon said this, The believer, like a man on shipboard, may fall again and again on the deck, but he will never fall overboard. Second important point to make concerning the doctrine is this. As mentioned before, if God unconditionally elects and then efficaciously calls his elect to himself, it is inevitable that these same individuals will be preserved in the faith until they reach final glorification when they will be with the Lord and be eradicated completely of their fallen corruption, never to sin again. You see, it is an unbreakable chain of redemption, as we saw many times already today. I was going to quote the passage, but it's been taught on enough today. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. Now, what's really important there is you notice, when are we justified? Well, we're justified when we believe in Christ, right? But notice, predestination there comes before justification. But then notice, all who are called, predestined, called, justified, will be glorified. It's an unbreakable chain. Absolutely unbreakable. All who are predestined will be glorified. So all of the elect are secure in their salvation. Those predestined will be glorified and receive every grace that they need in order to preserve them until they reach glorification. Now, finally, to close out the day, let me just end with three practical points concerning preserving grace. Number one, brethren, if you know someone who has professed to being saved and has fallen away completely, it is never biblical for us to think that they simply might be a saved carnal Christian on his way to heaven, but simply needs to submit to his Savior as Lord again. That's the deception of easy believism. We have to be honest with their genuine need, which is true repentance and true faith. Do you remember the parable of the soils, where the seed goes out onto the different soils? In Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, one of those is the soil of the stony ground. And Jesus said, These are they, likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. Or that could be translated, they fall away. And then the thorny ground here, verses 18 and 19. These are they which are sown among the thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The only seed there that produced any fruit in that parable was the seed that went on the good soil. Now again, there are many who teach easy believism who say, that all those soils were saved. The ones who didn't produce any fruit were just the carnal Christians. Not the case. Scripture is clear over and over and over again. If you don't produce fruit, you're really not converted. John 15, 4 and 5, Jesus makes it clear that only when we abide in Christ will we produce fruit. Those who don't produce fruit, in verse 6, he says, is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So in other words, the carnal Christian, so-called, is not in danger of losing his rewards. He's in danger of hellfire forever, and he must be warned of that. He must not be deceived, but honest and speak the truth. You see, this is one of the reasons why this, these evangelistic methods, Romans Road, take them to the end, one, two, three, repeat the sinner's prayer after me type of stuff, 
is so dangerous because how many times 100 people were saved today and then 20 are baptized and then seven become members of the church. Where'd everybody go? You see, because instead of preaching the gospel faithfully and understanding that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit and a sovereign work of God, you tried to save them yourself and you can't do that. It's just going to be a false conversion. So we must understand the true warnings that we must give to those who profess faith but show no evidence of being saved at all. Number two, with all the apostasy that the New Testament speaks about and that we see in the world, if you are here today as a genuine converted believer in Christ, it is by grace that you will be kept from falling away. And there you can have that assurance. It's not assurance in yourself or in your ability, but in, once again, God's grace. Amen. Look here again, 1 John chapter 2. After he warns them in verse 19 about those who went out from us, they were not really of us. It's manifest that they are not of us. Look what he says in verse 20. But ye, that's the true believer, have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. In other words, you have the anointing of the Spirit. You're the opposite of those who depart from us. Remember in Ephesians, it says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. It's a guarantee of receiving that final salvation. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 6, if you would. And I want to show you just a couple examples from Hebrews, which makes a clear distinction between the true believers and those who eventually fall away. Again, the author of Hebrews is warning these ones not to reject Christ and return back to Judaism, as you could say, but to continue following Christ. And he says here, as he warns them in verses 4 through 6, for it is impossible, this is Hebrews 6, 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. This talks about those who profess faith in the Son of God, they depart, and they never return again. It's a warning about apostasy. But look at verse number 9. But beloved... That's the believers. We are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Yes, he's warning about apostasy, but he's confident that the true believers will remain because they've really been converted and they will be kept. We have a similar example in Hebrews chapter 10. Look there, Hebrews 10, verses 29 and 30. Again, you have the warning of apostasy and the judgment that will fall upon those who turn away. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him who hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge his people." So there again, you have the warning of apostasy. But now look at the last verse of the chapter. 
But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. There again, you have the difference. You have the warning of those who may fall away, but those who are the true believers will not be drawn back. You see, through all these warning passages, fear serves as a warning for us, but the promise is a comfort for us because we know, yes, if we have been converted, God will keep us. And he uses those warning passages to put a fear in us so as not to turn away from him. This was one of the promises of the new covenant in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40, what does it say? I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Finally, Last practical point. Maybe this is a good way to end the sessions. Is God will be glorified because none of his elect will ever be lost. Look at Matthew 24, if you would. Here Jesus is talking to his disciples about something that was yet future for them. And he talks about those who will be offended, also can be translated as falling away. He says in verse 10, And then shall many be offended, or fall away, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. It's during a time of tribulation. It's during a time of persecution. But then look what he says in verse 13. But he that endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. There will be those who turn away. There will be those that endure. And those are the ones that are really saved. Look at verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets that shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So you're going to have people turning away, you're going to have many being deceived, but they will not be able to deceive the elect. These same ones in verse 31, it said, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So many are going to fall away. Many are going to reject Christ. The elect will not. They will be preserved. They will not be deceived. And they will be gathered to Christ at that day. One more passage, John chapter 10, where we see again a familiar passage And again, this shows us here again the security of the believer. But in context, it's security for those who hear the voice of Christ and follow him. Look at verse 27 of John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There's true conversion. There's the fruit. It's not just they profess faith in Christ. They also follow him in their lives. Now then look at verse 28. This is preservation. I will, and I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Then verse 29, you see both election and preservation. My father, which gave them me, there's election, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. They are elect, The father chose to give them to the son, and he purchased them. 
They are preserved by the Father. They are kept by the Son. And the demonstration of that is that they follow Christ in their lives. As we saw earlier, these same individuals in this very chapter, verses 11 and 15, are referred to as sheep, the ones specifically for whom Christ says he died for. You see, again, all these doctrines are linked together. And we see here the wisdom that is revealed in God's word. Ultimately, man benefits from salvation, but that's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is God's glory. That he has the power to keep, to preserve, and complete his work of grace. Philippians 1.6, remember? What Paul said he's confident of? That he which began a good work in you will complete it. He will finish it unto the day of redemption. Just to close, Arminianism says you will ultimately be saved because of your decision and ability to remain in the faith. Easy believism says you are secure because of a one-time decision that you made. Sometimes even, no matter how you live afterwards. But biblical preserving grace says this, you are kept by God's grace, and that's it. 1 Peter 1.5, you are protected, or you are kept by the power of God, through faith, which is a gift, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's glorification. Throughout your life, you will be protected, you will be kept, you will remain in the faith, that gift that God gave you will not be taken away until you experience final glorification. So from election to Christ's atoning sacrifice to the Spirit's application through preserving grace, God receives the glory. Let us pray. Father, we can simply give you glory. And we pray that through this conference that this would be the end result that man would be viewed more low as he should be and that you would be magnified, glorified, and honored. The only reason we know anyone has ever been saved is because of your grace. It's all by your power. It is your perfect work. We give you thanksgiving. We give you the praise and the honor. In Jesus Christ's precious name, amen.